Jason here. Welcome to the School of Zion ID. Today's episode is titled Musket Fire. There's been plenty of controversy in the LDS community this week after a talk was given by Jeffrey R. Holland. Uh, To kind of set the stage um, for that controversy, I'm actually going to quote Gordon Monson. Um, Like many of you, I've read a lot of Gordon Monson's articles, sports articles over the years. And probably also, like many of you, I disagree uh, with much of what he says. In fact, even in this article I'm going to quote, I disagree with many of the things that he wrote. But I've never been one to shy away from disagreement. Um, It's just me, but I'm the type of person that I actually would prefer to split my time evenly between MSNBC and Fox News. I like to hear what both sides of the aisle say. I don't believe that either side in most debates has a monopoly on truth. Uh, I'm certainly not afraid of it. Um, I'm not afraid of the debate and hearing both sides, like unfortunately um, has happened to our society, specifically in China with propaganda and censorship. But again, unfortunately, that has spread around the globe. So with that in mind, I have no problem at all quoting Gordon Monson. And I have no problem quoting things that I disagree with or that you might disagree with. But again, I think he does a good job of setting the stage for the debate. Here is the article from Gordon Monson. Let me pull it up. It's in the Salt Lake Tribune. It's titled, Jeffrey Holland Extended a Clenched Fist instead of an open hand in his BYU speech. Okay, let's get all up and personal here. Heaven help us, heaven help me. I've always liked hearing Jeffrey Holland's talks. I respect the man. He emailed me once in response to a column, and we exchanged thoughts. Cool. He's into sports. More importantly, the spiritual leader has a way with words that are powerful and emotional and influential. Words that speak to the soul, speak to my soul as a believer. He's a man of God, and I get that. But even men of God sometimes swing and miss or pop up an infield fly when a home run is needed. He expressed some beneficial and beautiful thoughts in his recent, now infamous, talk at BYU. Good stuff. But part of what he said during that speech at the school's annual university conference for faculty and staff, emphasizing that BYU and those connected to it should passionately utilize, and he quotes, musket fire in defending the faith, was unfortunate. An aggressive analogy in a time of disagreement and sometimes divisiveness among Orthodox believers and less traditional believers within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It was unnecessary and damaging. It not only widened the gap between those groups inside and outside of the school, as he called for more unity, but also served to distance the university from other universities, the ones that promote both academic pursuits and academic freedom. There is a sports angle here. But first, a question. Isn't it better to emphasize commonalities rather than differences to bring people together? Better to bring people together than to energize by dividing? Standing apart, being unique and peculiar, something many in and of the church have championed through the years, 
should never be used as a weapon, a musket, a hammer, a whatever, in wielding it as a means to separate the flock in righteousness from others. What good does that do? It concurrently sharpens a double-edged sword, making your own, the supposedly devout, feel better, perhaps, and others, the supposedly wayward, feel worse, making them feel not just unworthy but unwanted. Holland said that too many at BYU, almost all of whom are, in fact, faithful Latter-day Saints, aren't falling in proper line with church teachings, or at least aren't defending them. Some, he said, are criticizing those principles. He chastised those who join in on parades and wave flags supporting causes that run counter to church doctrines. For a church that sees itself in large measure, or should, or that should, as a hospital for sinners rather than a sanctuary for saints, stressing, fellowshipping, and missionary efforts to bring folks toward deity, defending truth is less important less effective than loving people in and into the fold. What's this got to do with sports? Holland said that essentially a BYU stance against same-sex lifestyles is to alienate it from associations with other institutions. So be it. That's a concept that could adversely affect BYU in many ways, in many environments, but specifically in attempting to associate with athletic conferences. Let's say it the way it is here. BYU is not in the Pac-12 or any other power league as we speak because of, at least in part, its stance that seem intolerant towards aforementioned lifestyles and varying manners of thinking. With these kinds of talks, just like Holland inferred, you can kiss any chance for such associations goodbye. While that may not be all that important to some Latter-day Saints, its symbolism sends a detrimental exclusionary message. Frankly, it's a message that matters more than a game. In a day and age of inclusion, such stances may, as mentioned, bolster the zealous, but they alienate everyone else, including some of those already inside the faith's chapels to whom Holland was speaking on this occasion. He warned against, quote, friendly fire and pointed to a letter he received from an unnamed person connected with the university who was worried about those at the school who have a more accepting, more expansive view. That concerned individual wrote, You should know that some people in the extended community are feeling abandoned and betrayed by BYU. It seems that some professors are supporting ideas that many of us feel are contradictory to gospel principles, making it appear to be about like any other university our sons and daughters could have attended. Several parents have said they no longer want to send their children here or donate to the school. Hold it. Does that sound like, how should we say it, a bit of an overreaction? Last time anybody checked, parents were lining up to get their kids into BYU, and kids were lining up to get in. Many are rejected because their academic record isn't deemed good enough. It's a crowded place. The threat to no longer give money to the school and dial in on that as a major concern is either pathetic or revealing. Holland acknowledged church leaders don't get many such letters. The question then becomes, why highlight it? Regarding that friendly fire, Holland said, From time to time, the church, its leaders, and some of our colleagues within the university community have taken such fire on this campus, and sometimes it isn't friendly. Wounding students and parents of students who are confused 
about what so much recent flag-waving and parade-holding on this issue means. Beloved friends, this kind of confusion and conflict ought not to be. His reacting to students at the school and their tithe-paving parents, whom he cited as being troubled and afflicted with the pain caused by such liberalism, was curious. Indeed, considering there are many more at BYU who are pained by the lack of love they're shown, by those not just holding onto the iron rod, but swinging it with gusto. Way back in 1975, I talked with a distinguished professor of religion at BYU who uttered something most profound about the future of the LDS Church. He said he feared fundamentalists more than liberals inside the faith, that they posed greater danger to the growth and establishment of Zion because of their staunch, unrelenting, unforgiving ways than the wider approach by progressive thinkers. Religions, including this one, have scriptures, have structures and rules, commandments and boundaries. That's all clear for anyone with eyes to see, and it's mostly acceptable. But spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is exactly what the LDS Church wants to do, begins and ends with love. According to the Bible, the two most important Christian commandments are love thy neighbor, or excuse me, love thy God and love thy neighbor. It's not defend the truth with a musket. Those who define love by pulling out and firing that musket are doing religious somersaults. That definition does more harm than good. Calling out a former student, a Victorian, who revealed that he's gay during a commencement speech two years ago, as Holland did, saying the student commandeered the graduation podium intended to represent everyone getting diplomas as a means of pushing individual license over institutional dignity was harsh and misplaced, not Christ-like. What's to be feared about a gay man giving the encouraging news to one and all that he could successfully graduate from BYU? Many took that as a moment of enlightenment. Moreover, that student said the talk was pre-approved by the school. He He commandeered nothing. And maybe that was what bothered Holland the most. Meantime, he mentioned how much he and his brethren atop the church love everyone who live with this same sex challenge, saying further that too often the world has been unkind, in many instances uh, crushingly cruel to these our brothers and sisters. But by harping on the topic, the subtle cruelty continues. We have to be careful that love and empathy do not get interpreted as condoning and advocacy, or that orthodoxy and loyalty to principle not be interpreted as unkindness or disloyalty to people, Holland said. As near as I can tell, Christ never once withheld his love from anyone. But he also never once said to anyone, Because I love you, you are exempt from keeping my commandments. But what about the two biggest commandments? Everything else is second place. What we're talking about here on the whole simply is understanding, extending it, embracing it. The wave of a flag, supporting the condition for those who are of a certain orientation, lending an open mind to those who want to believe, but who may be on the brink of desperation and expiration, sometimes leading to tragedy, having felt denied and condemned for the way they are, should not be thumped further by unbending doctrine. The church and its marquee university can do things the way they want. The bigger question is how should they do things, given, as they say, that they're God's only true church on the earth. 
What would Jesus do? Beats me. I'm just a believer, not an apostle. Holland trumps me on that account, in that regard. Hard truth, hard perception of that truth, may be something devout Latter-day Saints want to cling to as some sort of security blanket as they separate themselves from lesser people, from sinners and heathens. But why keep blasting condemnation when kindness softens hearts and has greater effect? Truth is, the LDS Church and BYU by extension finds itself in a deep conundrum. It wants to love all of God's children, but it wants to uphold its rules as they are laid down, as they've always been laid down, by the powers that be, at least the way those earthly powers interpret them. It disfavors and denounces same-sex relations, saying they are against God's way, but it's also commanded by that God to love and embrace and accept everyone. And gay men and women within the church and without it are caught in the vortex, tortured by it. Prayerful sons and daughters and moms and dads and brothers and sisters who are burdened believers, some of whom cannot carry the load. What do you do with that? What do they do with that? What does anybody do with that? At the most primary of levels, would the man upstairs really have a problem with with waving a flag on a college campus, participating in a parade, lending a hand to a brother or sister seeking understanding, but facing mostly rejection, trying to have empathy for those who think or act differently? Who cares what a few fanatically fervent students and parents worry about? They can holster their paranoia and keep their now hesitant donations. Here's to hoping that the Messiah would stand by what is right while finding a way to unify his flock with compassion and love, with an open palm and not a clenched fist, not dividing it with a musket or a hammer. And that's the end of that article. Again, I think Gordon Monson did a good job of showcasing the debate. This is not a new debate. This has been a topic that many inside and outside of the church, uh, many different nations for that matter, have thought deeply about and tried to solve. But I don't think anyone feels like we are there yet. Um, To me, it doesn't have as much to do with false doctrine as much as it has to do with incomplete doctrine. I think many of us have felt that this is part of that ongoing restoration of truth that Dieter Uchtdorf talks about. Um, We believe all that God has revealed. We believe that he reveals things today and that he will tomorrow. And that this topic of same-sex attraction is a very fragile one. And one that we have an incomplete knowledge base um, about it. There are a few scriptures that have helped me over the years um, come to terms with this incomplete doctrine. I think sometimes the truth and the solutions might actually be right in front of our faces, but for whatever reason, we haven't grabbed a hold of it yet. The Lord calls his flock Israel. Um, President Nelson has been very vocal about pointing our minds and hearts towards Israel and gathering Israel as the most important uh, responsibility that we have on 
on the earth right now. Well, within Israel, interestingly enough, it is divided um, into different sons. And one of those sons was Levi. If you just simply go to Wikipedia and read an opening paragraph about the tribe of Levi, who belongs to the family of God but has a different responsibility than that of some of his brethren, you'll read the following. According to the Bible, the tribe of Levi is one of the tribes of Israel, traditionally descended from Levi, son of Jacob. Um, They were designated as the priestly class, the Kohanim. The tribe of Levi served particular religious duties for the Israelites and had political responsibilities as well. In return, the landed tribes were expected to give tithes to the tribe of Lehi, the priests working in the temple in Jerusalem. Um, And those Levites who were not priests played music in the temple or served as guards. When Joshua led the Israelites into the land of Canaan, the Levites were the only Israelite tribe that received cities but were not allowed to be landowners because, quote, the Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, as he said to them. That's Joshua chapter 13, verse 33. If you think about the tribe of Levi symbolically, they did not receive a land inheritance. Well, those with same-sex attraction, symbolically, do not receive an inheritance of sons and daughters. I don't see any reason why we can't put the two together and be accepting to the fact that not all of the sons and daughters of God are the same. Many have different responsibilities and roles and yet all belong to the fold of God. In the book of Malachi, the Lord talks specifically about a covenant that he made with the tribe of Levi. Now, again, one other thing. I think in the world today, it's very common to interpret the tribe of Levi as the Jews. But I don't go there. Um, I reserve the tribe of Judah and all the scriptures related to Judah as the Jews I think the tribe of Levi is something completely separate and distinct. Starting in chapter 2 of Malachi, uh, verse 4, it says, And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me. And was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And so the Lord here did some explaining, right, about this covenant with Levi. But then he says in verse 8 of chapter 2 of the book of Malachi, But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. 
Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Has that happened among the tribe of Levi? Well, it certainly did in ancient times. Have we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, every man against his brother, by profaning the covenant of our fathers? If I could highlight a verse for today's world, it would be Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? If I could be in charge for one day, I would open my arms to all of our brothers and sisters who struggle with same-sex attraction. I've talked with so many of them. Many of them have told me, you think I wanted this? You think I chose this? You've got to be kidding. I would cut off my arm not to have to deal with this. Nevertheless, it's the lot we've been given. And unfortunately, they feel ostracized and they feel depressed. And many of them feel and contemplate even as far as suicide. What a tragedy because of incomplete doctrine. Once the doctrine is complete, there won't be any of that. It will all wash away and we will know for a certainty that God loves all of his children and has given all of his children special roles and responsibilities. Moving forward in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verses starting in verse 1, he says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So the Lord just said, there's going to be a messenger that comes. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For this messenger is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi. What a great promise and image that is. He will purify those who have not been blessed with an inheritance, but God is their inheritance. And he will purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. The word righteousness, as we have discovered in recent episodes, is not a word that was used lightly by Old Testament prophets. Study the words of Isaiah and you learn that righteousness is the arm of the Lord and that salvation won't come until righteousness has been revealed. Well, part of righteousness being revealed is that righteousness will purify 
the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they are and that that offering will be made unto the Lord. Um, Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Move to Doctrine and Covenants section 13. There's only one verse in section 13. (laughs) Obviously, this is a very important verse. Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministering of angels and of the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. And this shall never be taken again from the earth until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. This offering by the sons of Levi unto the Lord in righteousness, this obedience against all odds, obedience to the law of chastity against all odds, represents one of the most powerful examples of faith, righteousness, loyalty, and love for Father in Heaven that maybe will ever occur on planet Earth. Something to watch out for. In the meantime, before the arm of the Lord is fully revealed, I think it would serve all of us well to err on the side of love and understanding and mercy and acceptance to all of our brothers and sisters.